so the beautiful story about the narrative behind how Sorel became what it is, is it's a story of persistence and joy. There were human beings that, as you mentioned, were stolen from their homelands. They had their names removed. They had their families broken up. They were mistreated in every possible way, including being owned as property. And somehow, somehow, through all of this effort to erase their identity, this single cultural identifier survived. Hey everybody, welcome to the Decoding Cocktails podcast. I'm your host, Chris LeBeau. At the ripe age of 38, I left my former career behind and joined the hospitality industry. Since then, I've been on a rapid journey of learning, meeting all sorts of great people, and this, this podcast, is my chance to bring you along with me. Whether I'm interviewing somebody that works in the industry, another enthusiast, or occasionally stepping back to share what I'm working on or my thoughts. I'm so glad you're here. And so with that aside, let's get into today's episode. What's happening, everybody? Welcome back, because it is that time again for another episode of Decoding Cocktails. I am Chris LeBeau, and thank you for taking some time to be here. Uh, A quick note that um, if you're listening to this episode around the time that it drops, you have a chance to join uh, my patrons and the public for my next uh, virtual class on November 7th with Nicole Gilbert of J. Rieger & Co. Uh, As we approach Thanksgiving and think about the broader holidays, uh, there is, uh, with these gatherings, a cocktail could be great, but prepping while you're doing all these other things is a big undertaking. And so Nicole and I are not only going to talk about what you should think about making but we are also going to talk about the principles of batching. So it should be fun. There is a link to sign up um, if you're interested in the archive copy. That's for the patrons only, patreon.com slash decodingcocktails. Uh, but visit that in the show notes or decodingcocktails slash event to go ahead and register and sign up for the event. My guest today is Jackie Summers. He is the founder of Jack from Brooklyn, and their signature product is called Sorel. I wish there was a great way to summarize this interview, but the good part is uh, you're going to hear from Jackie in a minute. And what do you need to know about this guy? Well, in 2009, after 20-something years uh, in the publishing industry on the corporate side, um, Jackie was given a terminal spinal cancer diagnosis. And against the odds, Jackie beat that and at some point began looking around and was like, what do I want to do now that I've been given this gift? And he was like, you know what? He goes, my best days are spent day drinking and hanging out with friends, and he found a way to interweave that with a desire to tell uh, a story of the countless millions of people who were brought brought here against their will, and that is through a product that is sometimes more known through a similar name called Sorrel, and Sorrel is uh, kind of a a moonshine, a cocktail, a, a hooch that is made in homes throughout the Caribbean. But based on 
whether you're in small corners of Italy or other things like that, you know, the recipe reflects where the people were from, what additional ingredients they have. Uh, things like hibiscus often play a big role. And being the Caribbean, rum is almost always, always fortifying the drink. And so you're going to get a chance to hear Jackie talk about bringing that product to life, how many attempts it took, and the serendipity of running into Fawn Weaver, who is the founder of Uncle Nearest, and the capital that she has begun putting behind people like Jackie to help bring their products to life. But more importantly, um, you know, as someone who has stared death in the face, when you listen to Jackie talk, there is an absolute joy and energy. And uh, you didn't get to hear this part because we had shut the mics off by then. But, you know, running this cocktail business of mine is a lonely and not always easy endeavor. In fact, it can be very frustrating. And uh, there are moments you're like, is this worth it? And at the end of our conversation, uh, Jackie was spending, I think we were on the, we were talking like early September and he was getting ready to be on the road for like the whole month. And I was like, man, I was like, hang in there. And this was right in the midst of, we, we had a conversation from his brand new apartment that was completely unfurnished. He was like, you know what? He goes, every day is a gift and I feel lucky to be here or something like that. And I just remember getting off of that conversation. I was like, you know what? Yeah, he's right. And so um, as you listen to Jackie tell the story of Sorrel, um, take a minute to think about the people also, because Jackie will talk about this. Think about the people that matter to you and call them, text them, tell them you love them because you do not know. You don't know when the last time is because, you know, really the beauty of this cocktail and spirit stuff is it's an excuse often to be with the people you care about, to get to know people you want to get to know. And Jackie's uh, outlook um, deserves um, to be elevated and uh, we all could take something away from that. So... I don't want to take anything more away from it. Uh, he is uh, an absolute joy of a human, and uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation because uh, it's cool from a spirit's perspective, but we could all do with learning uh, a little bit more from him about improving our outlook on life. So here you go, me and Jackie Summers. Jackie, you know, I think in every industry, there seemingly are people who are in the middle of hustle mode. And I know that sometimes that can be a dirty word these days, but I feel like if that describes anybody right now, it, it seems to be you right now. So I just want to say congrats on, on the hall because you are, you are a man in motion right now. Got to say a step ahead of the law. <laughs> so... We're going to talk about Sorrel. We're going to talk about your, your background a little bit, but a place I always like to start is 
I'm always curious if there's a moment you remember finding yourself feeling intrigued or falling in love with spirits, cocktails, bars. Is there a moment you remember really feeling taken by this field? Yes. Um, and it does tie into the origin story. So we're going to end up backpacking to this. But the day that I left corporate America forever, uh, I signed uh, my release papers, my package papers at 10 o'clock in the morning. And then I got on my phone and I texted all my friends. Hey, I just got fired. Come meet me for drinks. And it was such a great day. I thought to myself, why am I not doing this every day of my life? I, uh, I've heard you talk before about uh, a love for day drinking with friends. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, when I think of some of the most magical days in my my corner of the world, it's like, yeah, it's 3 p.m., you know, and I'm in somebody's backyard and I'm like, why am I not here every day? So there's something leisurely about an afternoon cocktail. Yeah. You're not rushed. You're usually somewhere comfortable and you're less likely to get into the kind of trouble that will make you not be able to work the next day. <laughs> I, the, the other thing I do like about it, clearly sometimes the days or the afternoons become nights uh, and worse, but yes. of course, but sometimes it's like, oh, it's eight o'clock. I'm going to go to bed now. And you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I prefer because I do this professionally. Uh, I prefer to end my evenings earlier rather than later because in the morning I need to start the actual work of running the business. Day drinking is a luxury, but it is, uh, I lost the word subsidized by the fact that I own an alcohol company. <laughs> That's right. It's uh, you, you, you're entertaining at that point, right? So, uh, yes, it is. Account maintenance is part of the job. So in your, you know, I think about like, there's so many places that this interview can go, but you know, in the quiet hours of people's lives at times they have a moment where they have a a brush with a scary experience or something you know they're feeling a little off and uh but it turns out to be nothing and you know you certainly have had the full-on experience of having someone tell you you know you have cancer and uh you're probably not going to make it and here you are seemingly thriving, but what, what compels a person after all of that and, and fill in as much of, as you want, but what compels a person at that point to say, I want to launch a liqueur company. I want to launch Jack from Brooklyn. Well, I will tell you that the experience of coming to terms with your own mortality is liberating. I know for a fact that I am going to die. It might not be today. I hope it's not today. It might not be tomorrow, but it will happen eventually. And that becomes the impetus to go, I don't want to leave anything on the table. If there's something that needs to be said, if there's something that needs to be done, if somebody needs a piece of my mind, if somebody needs to know that I love them, now is a good time. I mean, we have been, the sages have said this for thousands of years. The problem is, think we have time i don't want to waste another minute of my life i want to do the things that have to be done 
I know one thing that you've uh, talked about that's very important to you is mentorship um, in terms of what you've received. But I think about, you know, that sometimes the mentor is someone that's just a little further down the path from you. And in a way, uh, while I must say, uh, and we passed each other very briefly uh, at Tales of the Cocktail, but you were being marauded by people as as felt appropriate at the moment. Uh, But you seem like, you know, you have this great sense of vitality right now, even though you've had this close encounter. So for people out there listening who might somewhere in the back of their brain be thinking, I'm unhappy in my line of work or whatever, you know, is there any sage advice you'd have based on your own experience for them not wasting any more time? Money can buy a lot of things. It cannot buy you one extra second of your life. So while you have the chance, do the things that matter. Nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. Literally, find out what's important to you, find out who's important to you, and spend every breathing moment for the rest of your life making sure those things count. I, uh, I have, I have a, a large handful of friends and I feel like I go out of my way at random hours of the day just to like message them to say, hey, you mean a lot to me. And I'm like, they might, they might be overwhelmed by this at some point, but like one day they're not going to be able to hear it from me anymore. So Nah, let people know, make it weird. Like I absolutely let the people you love know in no uncertain terms how you feel about them. Absolutely. So digging into, uh, so you and I share something in common, which is uh, at some point late in our life, we were like, hey, I don't really care for what I'm doing. I'm going to join the hospitality industry. Uh, Yep. So tell us a little bit about Sorrell's background, where it came from, because it's kind of a a representation of something more broad as might might be understanding. And so tell us about where Sorrel comes from, what it's about, and we can get into, of course, its formulation too. So you are correct in that it is a far bigger story than it seems at first. If you went back hundreds of years, Africans knew hibiscus was a powerful medicinal plant, full of antioxidants, full of antimicrobials. It's a natural antifungal. It's an anti-inflammatory. It's a natural aphrodisiac. And the Africans would make a tea from this flower and this was part of their ceremony and their celebration. And then somewhere around 500 years ago, the transatlantic trade starts and bodies and spices are taken unwillingly from the continent of Africa and moved to the Caribbean where they are sold in ports. But the beverage or the knowledge of that beverage somehow survives colonization and continued to thrive in these colonies that were in the Caribbean islands. So every island would do a slightly different version of it based on what spices were being traded in their ports. So Jamaica, for example, had a high influx of Asian indent Chinese specifically, indentured servants. So you got a version of this beverage that they called sorrel, S-O-R-R-E-L, with hibiscus and ginger and cardamom and allspice and rum because everything in Jamaica is rum. If you went deeper into the spice route, say Trinidad and Tobago, they had a wider influence of spices because they had different indentured servants. So they had indigenous people, they had enslaved Africans, 
We had uh, East Indians, and you just had a wider range. So if you had this beverage again based on hibiscus in Trinidad, you might get it with cinnamon and nutmeg and clove. Not as much rum. The Trinis aren't as big a drinkers as the Jamaicans. Many people are. Uh, my, grand my grandparents came from Barbados in 1920 and settled in Harlem, New York. And my grandfather was a chef. And in everything, Barbados is rum. You, if you break your leg, rum. If you have a toothache, rum. You have a cold, rum. So I grew up with a non-alcoholic version of this beverage and made a version in my kitchen for friends and family for almost 20 years and did not think twice about it. It was just part of my culture. So I'm curious now as I'm even thinking about it, you know, I know that Sorel's formulation took you, what was it like? Four, I got it written down. It's like 420 something or yeah, it was a lot. Uh, 623 failures in my kitchen to the, try to make a shelf stable version of it. Jackie, uh, I don't know if this is on Sorel's website. I haven't looked for it. Is there for the non-alcoholic version, is there a recipe published somewhere that people can try making at home for themselves? So here's a fun little trick about my website. Uh, as is required by law, it asks you to verify that you are 21 years or older. If you click no, it takes you to a non-alcoholic version of sorrow for the, for the kiddies and for the young ones. Uh, but again, my folks came from Barbados, so the idea of this without alcohol is, is an anathema to us. It's, it's like orgasm-free sex. I'm sure some people enjoy it, but it's probably not for me. <laughs> okay, that, that's okay. I, I'll tell you what, that needs to be on the NA. No, no, it doesn't. That, that would not be appropriate for the kids. Uh, so, but if I, so here's a question, because I know obviously part of what has made uh, Sorel, it's, um, uh, you know, it, it was difficult to formulate, was trying to make it shelf stable. If I were to make the NA version and then pair it with rum, is that essentially what was happening then? I guess I'm curious, can I make some hooch at home is what I want to know. Absolutely. Everyone who's making a home version of this, and this is all over the African diaspora, makes a version of these spices combined, of different ways of combining it, uh, and then they add alcohol afterwards. So this way the kids can get some and the adults can get some. There isn't a standard recipe for this because the people who brought this tradition over from Africa weren't allowed to read or write. It was illegal. So traditions were passed on orally. You would watch your grandmother or your mother do it, and everyone tried to put a little bit of themselves into, into the recipe when they, when they did this to make it their own. So there has never been a standard version of this. This is the first attempt to standardize this flavor. So we're 624 attempts in, and we'll certainly get to, uh, it'll, you know, the 12-year the, the ride, it looks like it took you to become an overnight success. Uh, but if we were, in terms of what's going into the Sorel, uh, it, wait, wait, is it Sorel or Sorel? I apologize here. This is actually a great question. Okay. If you have the homemade version, which again, many, many people make great versions of, it's Sorrel, S-O-R-R-E-L. Sorrel is a brand 
that is based on this. Uh, and it is different from every other homemade version in that it's the only one in the world that is shelf stable. It does not need to be refrigerated. You can open it up, close it, come back in a year. It's the same. And it's called Sorel because I have the speech impediments. I can't pronounce the letter R. So for me, trying to say sorrel is like trying to say rural or terroir is an awful word. But fortunately for me, I had eight years, or unfortunately, I had eight years of enunciation classes in public school. Other kids got to go play. I saw a speech pathologist every day. And here's one of the things that I learned. <clears throat> Words that end in a down sound are sad. Sorrow is a sad word. So well is happy, and I can pronounce it. So it is literally called Sorrel. So I don't sound like a dumbass every time I have to say the name. When the uh, when the chief brand ambassador can't say the name, I suppose that's yeah. So uh, good for you. Good. That's a, that's a strong marketing technique right there. I like that. Uh, so I I'm interested because before. I think I even knew we were going to talk. I loved something you posted. So I want to talk about what's not in Sorel, but I also, okay. but I also first like want to talk to it to tell us about your formulate formulation. What can people expect when they're smelling and tasting? I having done my homework and had some tastes myself, you know, it's going to present different when it's hot or cold. So when someone is sampling this, what are they going to encounter? And then I want to talk about artificial ingredients after that. So Sorel is made with Moroccan hibiscus, Nigerian ginger, Indonesian cinnamon and nutmeg, and Brazilian clove. There's cane sugar, and there is organic neutral wheat grain alcohol. Now, when you first nose this, there's a lot of clove, which people tend to think it's going to taste differently. But that first sip, the acidity of the hibiscus takes over and it's fruity and floral. There's a slight burn on the side at the cinnamon notes. The finish is dry, that's a nutmeg. And the ginger almost perfectly masks the heat of the alcohol. You never really feel like you're drinking booze. You just are feeling booze. The, the, the idea of it instead. And I, I've heard you say this before. So... And I think the reference was uh, in a in a toddy versus perhaps in like a, an, uh, on the rocks. But what are we going to encounter when this is hot versus cold, uh, you know, on, on the palate? So this is actually really amazing. It's completely different hot to cold. People hear things like cinnamon and nutmeg and they think, oh, immediately bacon spices, it's winter time. But this comes from a place where it's always hot outside. And hibiscus flowers only grow in that narrow equator band around the world where, again, it's always hot. So hibiscus is incredibly refreshing when it's cold. You get all those fruity, full notes. It's more citrusy than most citrus fruits. It's robust. But if you serve cereal hot, the fruit and the full notes take a backseat to the baking spice notes, and it's woody and warm and spicy. And unlike more wine, there's no fruit. So there's no tannins and no sulfites. So no wine headache. Hmm. So what I loved in particular, because I'm always thinking about the person out there who's 
in a liquor store looking at 800 things on the shelf, like no idea what, what to do. I remember you talking about when you, I think, had to release your recipe to the TTB and your attorney, whoever was helping you said, oh, there's no glycerin, there's no whatever in this. And you're like, nope, this is it. When these things, Jackie, you know, having kind of dug into the science behind this are being added to tequila, vodka, whatever, what are some of the additives that are going in to whatever extent you're aware and why are people putting these things in there? The truth of the matter that no one wants to admit is that alcohol does not taste good and badly made alcohol can kill you. Human beings have spent thousands of years trying to figure out we want the effect of alcohol but we want to enjoy it more than we do drinking it just like it is. So we have invented all sorts of ways that we try to make alcohol taste better. We put it into barrels. We toast the barrels. We add flavors. We add fruit. All sorts of different things are done to try to make alcohol more, appeal more appealing. What the big liquor companies usually do with alcohol is they add flavors to it. So you will get pineapple-flavored vodka and cinnamon-flavored whiskey. My methodology it reverses the logic. They add flavor to alcohol. I add alcohol to flavor. So if Sorel tastes bigger and bolder and livelier than other things that are in the market, it's because it's made with, with living things. And some of this could be too technical beyond it, but let's say I tasted that whiskey with uh, glycerin, as an example, or without it. Like when some of these additives are being put in, Jackie, it, you know, and I know that you're, you've done a lot of formulations, you're still not a career person in the industry, but are you aware of like, is it ultimately taking something that's harsh and giving it a perceived smoothness? I guess I just didn't know if you're aware of what some of these additives do that might be beneficial. They're covering up impurities, but what are they doing? Glycerin is usually a thickening agent. It's what gives that cloying sensation to most liqueurs. And it's one of the reasons Sorel is different. Sorel is meant to be consumed straight over rice. Uh, most liqueurs you cannot do this with. The interesting part from my perspective is all food products must list their ingredients, but the liquor industry has a better lobby than the food industry does. So yeah. liquor people can put all sorts, all manner of stuff into their products and never have to list it on the label, which is one of the reasons that I personally take pride in knowing we have five basic spices the ionized water, alcohol, and sugar, and that's it. There's nothing else. There's no additive. There's no preservative. And it is true. It is entirely true that you can synthesize a vanilla molecule, for example, but it will always taste synthetic. You can always tell the difference between actual vanilla and a copy that has had the soul removed. Yeah, it is. It, it's so true. And, you know, I think about the first time, you know, that I actually bothered to grind my nutmeg fresh on yes. a, on a, it's just like poof, your brain just explodes. You're like, what? Like, this is incredible. Yes. So, yes. yeah. 
a good Moreland pretzel is is a key for any for any home who likes to cook. So so clutch. So you know, one of the things that I'm just overtaken by is like the number of you know, obviously new brand. Let's let's push this hard, but the number of awards and ratings that are coming back where I'm like, is he paying these people off? Like, it's like, it's, it's pretty cool. Uh, so congratulations on that, but thank you. So obviously a lot of judges are finding that, that Sorrell stands very well on its own to your point on the rocks or in a toddy with some hot water. Are there a couple of, and I know it is going in a lot of places, but are there a couple of cocktail applications uh, you're proud of, excited by? For the people listening at home, they run out and buy a bottle. What should they be thinking about doing with this stuff? It depends upon the weather. It is hot, 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 hot in all around the country right now. So my favorite hot with a cocktail is a Sorel Hibiscus Mule. It's the easiest thing. Find a tall glass, fill it with ice, ounce and a half of Sorel, top it off with ginger beer, squeeze of lime, done. It's like the best red lemonade you've ever had. If it's autumn, I tend to like stirred cocktails. Sorel is a fantastic substitute for the vermouth in an old fashioned, uh, excuse me, in a Manhattan. In the wintertime, we just serve it hot, 15 seconds in a microwave, and it's the best bold wine you've ever had. And in the springtime, what we see are lots of gin and agave cocktails. So mm-hmm. we see lots of margaritas come out in the springtime. Got it. So it's entirely seasonal, and it depends on what the weather's like, where you are. In Miami, we're seeing Sorrel slushies. But in Colorado, they're sipping it hot after ski. Hmm. It's that's awesome. It's, it, it it is it is fun to see all the different variations uh, pouring out there onto onto the market. So, as as someone of Caribbean descent, we never thought about. I never thought about how this would serve as a cocktail ingredient, but the cocktail community is so amazingly creative and so talented. It's being used in ways that I would never ever have imagined. Every time someone figures out how they can take their creations and make them stand out with Sorel, I am honored. Yeah, it is it is wild to see as, you know, the 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 field of mixology gets pushed forward that people find the right ingredients to align or contrast that helps something shine through in a way that's uh that's that's beautiful. So well Sorel is interesting in one way in that no matter what you mix it with, it does one thing very well, and that's push flavor forward while hiding ethanol. So if you put Sorel with a gin, you'll get more floral notes. If you put it with something that's been aged, a whiskey or a rum, you'll get more barrel notes. If you put it with sake, you'll get more rice notes. If you put it with something agave-based, tequila or mezcal, you get more fruit. So no matter what you mix Sorel with, it's going to mask the alcohol and push the flavor hmm. wow yeah yeah either way i uh, uh being here in st louis it is uh it's proven difficult and also i'm sure like with the with the rising popularity i would imagine maybe it's hard to keep it in stock right now but yeah it's been hard to uh, it's hard to find anything these days but uh yeah actually we're bringing it back to st louis very very soon 
Cool. We just had that conversation last week. And here's a fun thing. I hired a brand new food scientist in January. PhD chemist, master sommelier, born blind. Wow. He says, and I believe him, he can see flavor. Hmm. And he has taken our basic recipe and looking at it on a molecular level, changed the process enough so that the product is better and we can make so much more of it faster. So supply is not an issue right now. Wow, that's great. Wow. You know, I mean, I mean, I, I certainly have heard that, you know, people that are denied one sense, their other ones can really flush forward. And so uh, that's, that's incredible. Wow. Wow. Okay. I, I was, I was denied all, all kinds of sense. So <laughs> I get to, I get to push forward and other things. So the whole goal is surrounding yourself by the right team, right? So ideally, yes. The, it's a funny thing as a CEO. My job is to find people who are not only better at things than I am, but actually really enjoy those things and then get out of their way. Uh, there was a time when I did all of the paperwork in my company and I did it poorly because I cannot stand doing paperwork. Now there are people who actually really like this and they're doing a much better job of it than I am. So uh, every day my job is to make sure people have the resources that they need, remove the obstacles if required, and then let them do their jobs and not, and not be an impediment to the process. Mm -hmm. So I guess something you've, you've, uh, you talked about earlier in terms of how Sorrel made its way to, you know, the, the new world is uh, a la bringing people here against their will and them bringing that knowledge. And I know that in your own journey, uh, it is certainly that uh, you were the first uh, African-American uh, to hold a distilling license uh, in the country, and that was 2010? 2012. 12. And I know you've talked about that, like along the way, there have been instances where you're there to present a product and security is wondering, are they supposed to be intervening or whatever? And so, you know, stories that people like myself hear about stories that you live every day, but you know, where do you feel like we are as an industry right now? What steps do we need to be taking to be less terrible uh, and more loving, but like any, any thoughts on that? you know, from your perspective? The fact that we can have this conversation means we have made progress in my lifetime. And that's deeply heartening to me. I believe we have a long way to go. And I have, I have always believed that the conversation cannot be limited to black and white. I spent the last eight years on the teaching circuit in hospitality, trying to help our industry understand why Diversity is in everyone's best interests. And for a while, I taught a seminar called How to Build Along the Table with the idea that if you're somebody who enjoyed any manner of privilege, it was mathematically in your best interest to extend to people who might not have the same privileges you have because all of the statistics show 
diverse companies are more profitable. And then I stopped teaching that seminar in 2020 because it became clear to me that it's easier to create equity from the ground up in a situation than to try to unbend a situation which has been bent for centuries. So I started to teach how to build your own table with the idea that, yes, we still need to extend tables, but if you can, start it yourself and find people that are in one way or another systemically disenfranchised and employ those people. And that is one of the functions, but what I do now is I'm getting to build a table that looks like what this country looks like. It's black and it's white and it's women and it's Latin and it's disabled and it's all age groups. And I truly believe that it is that wide range of perspectives that actually lets us do things in a different way. Do you, so, it, you know, it seems like, you know, at a very simple level, obviously right now, you know, the building your own table is building a, a company, but, you know, for giving this, this talk about how to build a table and now you're doing it, is that essentially the list in terms of people that are building a movement, make sure uh, a broader number of people representative or is there, are there a couple of steps that somebody like myself or other people listening should be thinking about in terms of building their own table? I think it's important to find people who have, as we said earlier, skills that you might not. So if we're taking the metaphor of building a table literally, you might need somebody who's got carpentry skills. You might need somebody who's got the physical tools. You might need somebody who can supply the lumber. It has been statistically proven that if you look, if you try, you can find incredibly talented people of every shade and every denomination under the rainbow that have the skills that you need. It might take uh, effort to do this, but the effort is always worth it. Always worth it. Got it. Yep. Okay, that's that's helpful. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, and it's intuitive, but thank you for saying it. I'm sure for the who knows how manyth time right there. Um, so I, I think we've covered this a little bit right here. Uh, but uh, regarding, uh, I, I want to go back to Sorel for a second. So okay. hopefully, hopefully out there, especially as it's coming back into you know. St. Louis, and just people are encountering it more and more in every market out there. You know, at the end of the day, a bottle is really, in addition to awesome flavor, it's the chance to tell a story. You know, if yes. you if you show up with Tito's at a party, it's basically at this point saying nobody's going to be unhappy, you know, but like, right. but, but there is, you know, Sorel obviously carries a deeper story with it. So for somebody out there who might need that additional little push, what should they be sharing about this when they're opening it up at a party, serving it on the rocks or putting it into a margarita? What would you want them to share? So the beautiful story about the narrative behind how Sorel became what it is, is it's a story of persistence and joy. There were human beings that, as you mentioned, were stolen from their homelands. They 
had their names removed, they had their families broken up, they were mistreated in every possible way, including being owned as property. And somehow, somehow, through all of this effort to erase their identity, this single cultural identifier survived. And it went from Africa to the Caribbean, which was a combination of uh, slaves and indigenous people who hadn't been slaughtered. And the culture continued to grow among these people. And then it was brought from the Caribbean islands to places like Harlem, New York, where my grandfather came 100 years ago. So I believe that every single bottle of Sorel is a statement about the persistence and the joy of the people who kept this cultural identifier alive. It's a funny thing about human beings. We use our food to remind us who we are. There's nothing like your grandma's cooking. And Sorel is every Caribbean grandma reminding them who they are every time they open a bottle. That's, uh, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, it's, uh, I, Yes, thank you. Thank you. So I know that you are, you know, in, in speaking of other people who are seemingly rising like uh, you know, you know, meteoric rise, uh, I know that your work brought you to to know Fawn Weaver at Uncle Nearest. So tell us a little bit about because as far as I understand, there is a there's a fund that Fawn helped generate designed to help get behind people such as yourself. So what is that? And yeah, what else should people know about this? Because it was fun to encounter that. So Fawn, I just want to say that for all the interviews and for all of the media that she so well-deservedly receives, they don't actually capture how good a human being she really is. Fawn launched Uncle Nearest as a direct response to trying to honor Nearest Green, who was the first African-American master distiller, the man who taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. And Uncle Nearest Whiskey, Freeman Whiskey, became not just the fastest growing whiskey in the history of this country, but by far the most awarded. And Fawn thought to herself, yes, our whiskey is great. And yes, this is a strong company. But why don't other brands experiencing the kind of success I'm experiencing? And her conclusion was, if other people had the access to the same kind of resources I do, maybe I could show that this isn't just about me. Maybe I can show that it's been about us all along. And so Fawn established this fund to, again, help businesses like mine, uh, businesses that are owned by people who are marginalized, to thrive out there in a competitive world. So far, she's funded three grants, Equiano Rum, Hella Bitters, and Sorel. And I got to tell you, it is great being part of the Uncle Nearest family. Everywhere we go, we feel that we share not just resources, but values. It is about more than the juice. It's about the story. It's about the narrative. It's about honoring our past. Uh, I'll tell you, like, to anybody out there that has not heard Fawn's story, it's like... You know, it's so good. It's really good. It's really good. Yeah. It's it's like uh I ran into something similar uh with 
So, uh, and obviously Fawns has a much heavier weight to it, but uh, a gentleman out of Kansas City was literally make, like running a cocktail bar in a hundred-year-old building that used to be a whiskey distillery. He's like, this is moment he's like, I have to bring this back to represent right. my hometown. Uh, right. But for Fawn, it was just like the blocks that seemed to fall consecutively were just like, oh, I, I, hello? Yeah, it's like, you know. Fawn is both a powerhouse and an incredibly compassionate individual. The way she moves through the world is just beautiful. So I'm curious, Jackie, you know, I've heard you talk before about many of the uh, barriers to entry that could exist around distilling, in addition to uh, a society that can have uh, stereotypes that are unfairly uh but also this idea that we have distilling laws where like you can never have done something illegal at all before. We know that certain people are more likely to have the legal system after them. So one, this this is crazy to read, especially when you think about like, oh yeah, who was probably writing this? Like, you know, probably, probably gangsters out of prohibition, which is just like crazy. Are you aware of, is there anybody making... Uh, trying to address this, like in terms of like, this is just complete BS. Like, have you heard of anybody trying to like fight this stuff right now? The only way to fight the systemic barriers is with, and this is a technical term, goo gobs of money. Uh, part of the problem is goo gobs of money are not generally speaking available to folks like myself. So I think Paul Weaver is absolutely on the front of establishing a beachhead on the front lines of changing the narrative. She's taken brands that already had a good story and good juice and good teams and gone, let me help you go to the next level. So I believe that with what we're trying to do, we will not just make inroads in our own brands, but hopefully inspire other brands and other generations to find this in themselves. Again, I cannot tell you how many people make a version of Saul in their kitchen who are floored to see it now in bottles. But there's so many other small, relatively unknown cultural beverages out there like what Sorel became that are just waiting for somebody to go, this needs to come up. This needs to move beyond my grandma's kitchen and be a product so everybody can enjoy it. So hopefully, that's something that I that I'm going to do. I'm going to find other beverages like Sorel, which have cultural relevance. Figure out how to make them shelf stable. Find somebody from that culture that I can invest in the brand and put out front, so I'm not culturally appropriating. And then we can bring all new flavors to the world. I, I think that is kind of the the interesting moment we find ourselves in that while I at times feel like the supply is just overwhelming in terms of the selection we have, it seems that, yes, like how many more opportunities are there where there's new flavor combinations out there that exist? They've just not been commercialized, brought to light, whatever the right term might be, that deserve a great moment in the sun. Nobody wanted mezcal uh, before 
Ron Cooper and Steve Olson were telling this story, and now it's like it's pervasive. Everywhere. Yeah. Uh, the great thing about Sorel is it's a category of one. I will never make a gin, a rum, a vodka, a mezcal, a tequila, a whiskey. God bless people who are doing that and doing it well. My plan is to introduce other categories of one and have other flavors out there in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So being uh, Jack from Brooklyn at the end of the day, uh, you know, you've obviously, you've been able to tour around and see all sorts of stuff, but I don't know, are there ways you've seen uh, the New York cocktail scene change that are, or the, the, or the spirit community, however you would think about this, that are exciting over the long lens of time you've looked at it? Any, any thoughts about that in general? I believe that the cocktail community has become more self-aware. There was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, when we didn't have conversations out loud about sexual harassment. It was just a given that women in our industry were going to suffer and there was really no option for what they can do about it. Now we have those conversations out loud and we have trainings, not just to prevent it, but to recognize them while it's happening. There was a time when we did not speak about pathways for baristas or barbacks or back of the house to have career development. And now we're having those conversations and, and some people move from back of the house to front of the house. We've seen people move from being barbacks to bartenders to, to buyers. There are, there are pathways that are being created because we're talking about things we didn't talk about before. And while, I, while we have a lot of work to go, we are seeing change. Part of, I think, we have, one of the things I believe you need to accept if you are someone who wants to be an agent of change, is that all you can do is what you can do and it may happen in your lifetime. It is your job to plant seeds that someday somebody else will enjoy the shade of the tree. So the fact that we've seen any progress in my lifetime, I'm glad. But my job is to make the mountain higher so whoever comes after me don't have to face the obstacles that I did. When I... Uh... At Tales this year, I heard someone say who'd been to a couple beforehand. She said, you know, uh, I think the amount of conversations being had right now about uh, substance abuse, about low alcohol, no alcohol uh, cocktails, work-life balance. She's like, the fact that we're even talking about this stuff now, and thankfully for all like the shit that it was, the pandemic really helped push this even further forward. So, so I spent three years as a co-chair of the education committee uh, with Lynn House of Ebony Hill Brands, specifically focused on uh, lifestyle issues for our community. And we got to do some fun things. We had the first ever all black uh, panel at Tales. We had the first ever all Latin panel at Tales. We had the first ever all queer panel at Tales. We had the first panel on pronouns um, at Tales. We were able to talk about how we could make lives better. Because after a certain point, anybody can make a cocktail. But if you can't make a better work environment for people, you're not actually helping them. So we're trying to continually figure out how we can make work life just better because if if we do not do this 
then we are missing the point of hospitality to begin with. We can't be hospitable to our guests and inhospitable to the people we work with and for. Yeah, you know, to expect your staff to to uh, to treat people well, and uh, but you treat them like crap. It just doesn't it doesn't work like that at all. It doesn't work. I I remember being at a at one of the talks later in the week at Tales, and and one of the gentlemen saying, "Because uh, I've been coming to Tales for a long time, and I have never seen rooms and panels that look like this, and that that warms my heart a whole lot." So yeah, we are seeing change. We have a way to go. Yeah. I, uh, I have a, a, a question. I'm just curious as I think about my own arc because I started this podcast, I don't know, eight months ago, kind of on a whim right. or whatever. And, and so sometimes I keep thinking like, what's my role to play in this industry right here? So as you're growing, and this is really designed to be just from my lens of thinking, you know, but I wonder about as people like myself, like wonder how can they help uh, brands or other parts of the industry that are rising? Are there are there traits or characteristics, things like roles that someone like yourself is looking to have filled as you grow? Because sometimes I wonder, are there ways that somebody like myself can help from the outside or the inside? So I guess I'm I'm just curious, like what what do brands of your size that are growing need help with at this point? Platforms. The problem with small brands always is that we don't have access to the larger platforms. So you and I being able to have this conversation right now is exactly how we change the nature of the conversation. It is very much uh, the snowflake in the, in the snowstorm theory. No single snowflake thinks it's responsible for the avalanche. But you get enough of them together, and it makes a difference. So you are making a difference, and for that, thank you. You're very welcome. Very welcome. Um, yeah, I'm just always, I don't know, it's like you, I'm sure. I wake up every day, and like I need more help to like outsource some of my tasks because my brain is going a 1,000 miles a minute sometimes, and I need someone to be yeah. able to manage some of that so I can uh, be like, okay, okay, like let, 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 me, let me make some room here. Yep. I have, uh, that is, those are the questions that I have in mind. Is there anything regarding Sorel, its trajectory? We haven't talked about uh, history that, that, you, that you'd like to cover at this point. So the two things I'm looking forward to next year, at the moment, Sorel is being made at Laird's, who's America's oldest distiller. And aside from the fact that they have 300 years more experience than I do, they share our values and they believe in the long term and they believe in integrity and longevity. That said, I'm looking forward to having a distillery in Brooklyn again, uh, which will serve as our offices and our visitor center and hopefully a little restaurant bar. And the government of Barbados reached out last year and they would very much like me to build a distillery there that, they'll, that they will help to put together. So at some point in the next two, three years, I'm looking at from the ground up building two more distilleries, one in Brooklyn and one in the Caribbean, that will subsidize what's happening with the Laird's family in New Jersey. So hopefully we can start to make this into an international thing. 
That's great. I remember you mentioning in another interview, the, uh, the, the Barbados thing. That's really cool. So uh, uh, congratulations on that. It is, it is an honor. I have to tell you, uh, as someone of Caribbean descent, my people can be judgmental. <laughs> so to take this product that has been around for centuries that everyone is familiar with, and put it in a bottle is pretty audacious because they're always going to compare it to something that they're familiar with. If it wasn't as good as it is, if it wasn't getting the kind of critical reviews that it gets, they would call down evil on my name for the rest of my generations. <laughs> so I am very, very happy every time Sorel does well in the press. I'm happy when it does well in competition because it's not about me. It's about the culture. That, uh, that, that story too makes me think about other cultures, you know, like Italy, for example, where they are, you know, like, you know, you, Oh, you think that too Michelin star restaurant can do it better than my mom. Yeah. I right. got, I got something for you. So, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's great. Uh, so, uh, we'll certainly have it in the show notes, but where, you know, hopefully people are feeling compelled, where should they be following you and how should they keep up with Sorrel? Where, where, where should they, where should they look you guys up? If you do social media and not everybody does on Instagram, it's Sorrel, S-O-R-E-L official. And that is also the website, SorrelOfficial.com. All of our news, all of our stories, all of our recipes end up on there. So that's the best place to find us. Perfect. Perfect. And we'll be sure to link all of that in the show notes. Uh, uh, Jackie, uh, on a day that you are moving apartments, thank you for, <laughs> th thank you for taking time to chat. I really, really appreciate it. This is, this is a lot of fun. And Otto, thank you so much for taking the time today. You bet. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. The show notes for today's episode are available at decodingcocktails.com slash podcast. If you'd like to keep up with what we're working on, there are two great ways to do so. One, our short weekly newsletter, Cocktail Confidential, which you can sign up for at decodingcocktails.com slash newsletter. Or give us a follow on Instagram at Decoding Cocktails. If you think this podcast is great stuff, we'd love it if you'd subscribe or, of course, share an episode with a friend. The Decoding Cocktails podcast is produced by Chris Bay and myself. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again soon, and happy cocktailing.